I really don't get out that much. I can spend a lot of time on my work and reading and writing, watching an occasional movie. Uh, you know, I'm kind of a hermit. I like it that way. And so, uh, because I don't get out that much, I don't get a chance to mingle that much with people I do not know. Maybe people who were some of the people who's, who saw some of my videos that we've doing here for a good five or six years now. We've gotten over from YouTube and Minds.com and Facebook and Twitter and lots of other places. I mean, we've gotten over 150 million views. I mean, heck, we had two on Twitter last week that are, I think they're up to about three quarters of a million views. Just two videos in one week. And so, uh, you know, so I, I kind of think I'm a, you know, a bit of a hermit. So I guess because I think I don't go out that much, people don't know who I am. But I'm always surprised when people do. I saw, so down in Washington, D.C., uh, just a couple days ago, I was down there for a couple days meeting one of my buddies from California. And on the way out the door, a guy who had been my room service waiter came up to me and he said, Hey, did you like your spaghetti bolognese last night? I said, I said yeah, I, it was kind of good. Thanks, thanks, thanks. And my buddy said, that guy knows who you are. I immediately said, no, I don't think so. So we're, you know, we're, we're leaving D.C. We're getting breakfast at uh, the hotel restaurant, saying, guys, there. He goes, hey, how was your uh, spaghetti bolognese the other night? I said, hey, it was good, good, thanks, thanks. Just, you know, I'm just doing the breakfast buffet thing. And he goes, hey, you're famous, aren't you? I said, well, why do you say that? He goes, because I've seen your videos where you're talking about the fellas. I said, okay, yeah, that's me. Uh, and so I got a kick out of it. My buddy got a kick out of it. I had to go over to him and admit I had to say the. I had to say the sweetest words that one human being can hear from another human being. You were right. I was wrong. But here's the thing. Every, I, 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 know, I know I need to get out more. I know I don't get out enough. Whenever I see a video like the one we're going to see here from Des Moines, Iowa, there's something in downtown Des Moines called a Skywalk, which I, I I think it's something downtown. You know, you just it's it's a Skywalk. It's an enclosed thing. You'd up there walk around. It kind of lifts you off the streets of downtown Des Moines, you know, so you can walk and work and play and shop all in one time without getting into the inclement weather, whether it's winter or summer. Anyway, the fellas have been going crazy on the Skywalk the last couple months. Now the guy who's running security on the Skywalk says, no, it's too dangerous for my people now. And so I'm look, listening to this story, and he might have to give up the contract. But as I listen to the story, I just cannot get over that we're talking about Des Moines, Iowa. This is now a center of black crime and violence, beginning with Beat Whitey Night at the Iowa State Fair, not too far away from where the story you're about to hear uh, took place. This is Des Moines, Iowa. I can't get over this. I'll never get over it. I will always think that Des Moines, Iowa is some kind of bucolic, peaceful place where people can just walk hand in hand down the street 
without having to look over the shoulder for a couple of fellas and a couple of lovely ladies who think they're going to have a little fun by beating the piss out of you, have some fun at your expense while they are laughing, laughing, laughing. But one, so even though I can't get my mind around this thing in Des Moines, Iowa, we're going to hear the chief of police chime in. And when he chimes in, we're going to hear a very familiar refrain. Oh, it's very safe. So the guy who runs security on this skywalk, he just comes up and says, yeah, his, his people are in danger, losing over 100 man hours to injuries. Lots and lots of incidents we've documented here on the skywalk. Lots of incidents in downtown Des Moines, Iowa. And the chief looks at us and goes, oh, no, nothing wrong down there. It's all good. It's all good, Colin. Colin, you're just blowing these things out of proportion. <sighs> Man, you know what? These cops on the beat, whether they're in Des Moines or Delaware or Los Angeles, they're heroes. These chiefs of police are not. It's very disheartening and uh, and very upsetting, but, but unfortunately it doesn't surprise me. Tom Conley's talking about a weekend incident where a group of teens are accused of attacking a couple on the skywalk, leaving a 21-year-old man bloodied up. His officers have patrolled the roughly four and a half mile system for the past 17 years. He says violence is getting worse even against his officers. We've had almost 100 hours of lost time and injuries. The main problem, he says, is the same group of 20 to 30 teens. Two much for two unarmed officers. They'll get in these mobs. Uh, we've seen them um, knock older people over before, harass people in scooters, uh, throw food over other people. Connolly says his contract with the Skywalk Association ends at the end of the year. He's asked for better staffing and for it to allow armed patrols. He says discussions with its leader, though, haven't been productive. She said, quote, there will be no guns on the Skywalk, end of quote. All that said, police are painting a much different picture of the Skywalk. Violent crime in the Skywalk is very rare. You know, it's actually a safe place. The crime that you typically encounter there is something of a transient nature or something disruptive. Police say large, reckless groups of teens are a downtown-wide issue they're trying to help solve. But Connolly says when his contract's up, he may just let another company... All right, let me tell everybody who I am here, just in case I happen to see you in a hotel room, hotel sometime in Washington, D.C., Hi, this is Colin Flaherty. I'm the author of Don't Make the Black Kids Angry. Available on Am Smashwords, not Amazon. Not yet. Hold on tight. Also, having a lot of luck with uh, a lot of people are really enjoying, they tell me they're enjoying, the audio version of White Girl Bleed a Lot. Lots of stuff about Des Moines in there, you better believe. So anyway, that's who I am. Here's what we do here. What we do here is we talk about black violence wildly out of proportion and how so many people, like people in Des Moines or on the police department, how they are in denial, deceit, and delusion about it, and how that creates some very dangerous conditions for people who think they live in a world where they can trust the word of the police chief. They can trust the people at the newspapers and the local TV stations to tell them the truth without fear or favor about things, at a minimum, that are dangerous or not. Boy, I got, I got a letter today. I love getting these letters from retired cops. I love getting letters from retired people with direct experience with the fellas because we're going to have to start counting on the old dudes and the old chicks 
to come out of hiding, start telling us their stories about black violence and denial, because we need to talk to the people who are immune from the tap on the shoulder and the summons to HR department. Oh, it's another thing. When I was talking to that guy, one of our viewers in that hotel in Washington, I said, yeah, yeah, you know, then I used the word fellas, and I was just talking to him just in a normal voice. He goes, oh, keep it down, keep it, keep it down, keep it down, Colin, keep it down. And I don't want to get in trouble. Wow, isn't that amazing? Living in the United States of America, one mile away from the White House, and people are terrified to tell the truth about black crime and violence because somehow telling the truth about that will bring the world down on you. That's another thing I can't get over. Can't get over Des Moines, and I can't get over the fact that so many people have damn good reason to be totally aware that if they talk truthfully and plainly about black crime, violence, and denial, their life will change, and not for the better. And the people that are going to make their life change for the worse are the same people that are looking at us going, hey, Colin, what are you talking about? Black crime and violence, that's not a thing. Of course not. We don't commit crime, Colin. Anyway, here's a letter from a cop I got today. I thought you guys might get as much of a kick out of it as I did. Hey, Colin, I've been listening to your show for years now and having first heard of you by reading your book, White Girl Bleed a Lot. That book described the kind of events I saw every day when I worked in the LAPD. I worked in the 77th Street Southeast Divisions. That's where they pulled Reginald Denny out of the truck and beat him with a brick during the LA riots. Southeast is informally known as Watts and contains several large housing projects. These areas are south of the Newton Division, which you recently featured on your show with the video of the L.A. police officers getting shot by some random guy while they were in a foot pursuit through the projects. They call that area the Shootin' Newton. That's what my cop out there called it. These police divisions compromise some of the worst areas the city or even the United States has to offer, says this cop. The first time I saw a seven-year-old boy shot in the head with an AK was off Crenshaw Boulevard in Los Angeles, not in some sand-choked wasteland in Iraq. His four-year-old sister didn't fare much better after her arm was almost traumatically amputated by an AK round during the same shooting. They were both caught up in a gang crossfire by rival gangs of fellas, That is just a small taste of the bloodshed I had to witness day after day during my years in Los Angeles. I put up with all the nonsense of having the mayor, the council, local federal officials, the community, and even my own police senior leadership against us, against the cops on the beat. Final straw came when the traffic court judge began dismissing my tickets. As all the defendant had to say was that I was lying and he was pulled over for driving while black. You would think it would have been something else that made me leave, like getting shot at or having someone assault you or spit on you. But to me, there was something extremely humiliating and personally destructive when someone under oath and in open court boldly calls you a liar and implies you are a racist. 
I stopped writing tickets, started filling out job applications, and got out of L.A. That was 20 years ago. The level of harassment and hatred of police you see now nationwide is what was happening in California years ago. We used to say that the people of Los Angeles would get the police they deserve. Policing became just driving and waving, and only responding to radio calls. In any event, I recently retired after a 20-plus 20 years in law enforcement. If I had written this letter while I was still on active duty, I would have been fired immediately. I never posted a word on social media, as I have had co-workers fired for some non-PC remark. I ended up in federal employment and spent most of my career overseas. He was in security, federal security. That's all I'm going to say. I worked in such garden spots as Haiti and Kenya, among others. I really enjoy listening to your audio cuts you play of people returning to Africa and how they describe how great it is. They are failing to tell you that, that they live behind barred windows and compounds with 20-foot walls topped with broken glass and razor wire. The local police in these countries were as unhelpful as they were corrupt and incompetent. Africa is not some sort of nirvana fantasy for POC, people of color. Having been to several of the countries adjacent to Somalia, I can tell you that we should not accept any refugees from this area. Violence from these so-called refugees is a feature, not a bug, not an anomaly. It's a feature. After a rewarding sojourn to the motherland of Africa, I would return to the Washington, D.C. metro area for a time before my next overseas assignment. I could go on at length about life in the Washington, D.C. area, covering such topics as, quote, fun while riding the bus and metro, and, oh no, my car's GPS has taken me through an undeclared war zone, and, tactical considerations for avoiding and outrunning groups of youths just letting off a little steam. I could have worked a few more years in D.C., but I decided to hang it up when my organization began to order us to take mandatory classes about my unconscious bias with courageous conversations. I knew I couldn't make it, make it through multiple eight-hour-long sessions where I would be singled out for extra attention due to my inability to transcend my whiteness. One wrong response and I would be done for, so I declined to take the classes and put in my papers to retire. I had no illusions about staying in the D.C. metro area. I knew what my wife and kids would face. I couldn't afford sending my kids to a private school like Sidwell Friends. The rich people in D.C. and Northern Virginia who vote for all the diversity nonsense and the importation of refugees do not have to deal with the results of their actions. Their kids go to private schools. My kids are relegated to the public system. The public schools here are not that great and are on a downhill slide. I had classmates who went to a majority-minority schools and it destroyed them. Parentheses, Colin, you might recall such a school in San Diego by the name of Samuel Gompers. My first duty was to take care of my family. Some might say that I was running away, but they would be wrong. 
I worked and live in some of the most violent and dangerous places on the planet and never ran from anything. My kids can't be expected to be mixed martial arts ground fighting experts skilled in winning battles, facing overwhelming numbers of opponents all under the indifferent eyes of jaded school teachers. So I abandoned the D.C. area and the Southern California area for good. Now I am up in the frozen north of the country where all I have to worry about is the occasional moose showing up at the kids' school. Still, despite how far I have journeyed, the federal government has decided to send refugees here anyway. I just bought my family an extra couple of years at best. Hey, I'm sorry I never drove out to Wilmington to meet up with you. Still... This letter is what I would have said in person. Please feel free to read it on your show. And he gives me his address. And it's weird because I don't even know. I don't. He probably knows this by now. But the place where he just moved to, you can't swing a dead cat in that town without seeing a Colin Flaherty fan wearing a badge. That's all I'm going to say about that town where he is. Tons of cops up there are very enthusiastic about my podcast and other things that we do around here. So I was very happy to hear from him. Thanks so much for letting us uh, letting us know what the hell's going on. You know, I got a I got another letter from another viewer. Anyway, this was an American thinker. Part of this was an American thinker a couple of months ago. And uh, I, you know, I, I contribute to that magazine sometimes a whole bunch, sometimes a little, depending on what what else is going on. So I'm surprised this one kind of got by me. But let me read the intro, then let me read this letter because it kind of it kind of fits in with what the last letter just said. Hey, Colin, my brother spent the last 32 years in Zimbabwe. He went over there under a Reagan administration foreign aid program to start an anesthesia program at the university. He was visiting here this week, and he read, he read me this email he received from a friend there. It's interesting insight into the black psyche, so to speak, to which, to it, blacks are not enslaved. My brother confirmed witnessing many of these same characteristics in country he lives in and in neighboring countries. In his private practice, he flies around in different countries in Africa to help with medical needs as he can. I thought you might appreciate reading this. Yeah, I got a kick out of reading this letter. And I actually looked it up. So Snopes, apparently this letter is like viral, right? People were like sending it around on emails and Snopes even said, yeah, a lot of people are reading this. They want to know if it's authentic. And what Snopes said, he had to kind of like swallow it and say, yeah, that person, Karen McQuillan, she exists. Yeah, she was in the Peace Corps. Here's what she said. What I learned in the Peace Corps in Africa, Trump is right. Three weeks after college, that's by Karen McQuillan, three weeks from American Thinker, Three weeks after college, I flew to Senegal, West Africa, to run a community center in a rural town. Life was placid, with no danger, except to your health. Health. That danger was considerable because it was, in the words of the Peace Corps doctor, we were living in a, quote, a fecalized 
environment, unquote. In plain English, shit is everywhere. People defecate on the open ground, and the feces is blown with the dust onto you, your clothes, your food, your water. He warned us the first day of training, do not even touch water. Human feces carries parasites that bore through, the, through your skin and cause organ failure. Never in my wildest dreams would I have imagined that a few decades later, liberals would be pushing the lie that Western civilization is no better than a third world country or would teach two generations of our kids that loving your own culture and wanting to preserve it are racism. Last time I was in Paris, I saw a beautiful African woman in a grand dress having her child defecate on the sidewalk next to Notre Dame Cathedral. The French police officer, ten steps from her, turned his head not to see. I have seen. I am, I am not turning my head and pretending unpleasant things are not true. Senegal was not a hellhole. Very poor people can lead happy, meaningful lives in their own culture's terms. But they are not our terms. The excrement is the least of it. Our basic ideas of human relations, right and wrong, are incompatible. As a 21-year-old starting out in the Peace Corps, I loved Senegal. In fact, I was euphoric. I quickly made friends and I had an adopted family. I relished the feeling of the brotherhood of man. People were open willing to share their lives and, after they knew you, their innermost thoughts. The longer I lived there, the more I understood. It became blindingly obvious that the Senegalese are not the same as us. The truths we hold to be self-evident are not evident to the Senegalese. How could they be? Their reality is totally different. You can't understand anything in Senegal using American terms. Take something as basic as family. Family was a few hundred people, extending out to second and third cousins. All the men in one generation were called father. Senegalese are Muslim with up to four wives. Girls have their clitorises cut off at puberty. We call that female genital mutilation. I witnessed this, she says. What I thought was going to be a nice coming-of-age ceremony like a bar mitzvah or a confirmation. Sex, I was told, did not include kissing. Love and friendship and marriage were Western ideas. Fidelity was not a thing. Married Married women would have sex for a few cents to have cash for the market. What I did witness every day was that women were worked half to death. Wives raised the food and fed their own children, did the heavy labor of walking miles to gather wood for the fire, drew water from the well or public faucet, pounded grain with heavy-handed pestles, lived in their own huts, and had conjugal visits from their husbands on a husbands, plural, on a rotating basis with their co-wives. Their husbands lazed in the shade of the trees. Family was crucial to people there in a way Americans cannot comprehend. Unless, unless, here's from Colin. Unless, of course, you're Hillary Clinton and you know it takes a village to raise a child. Anyway, let's get back to this uh, McQuillan. The Ten Commandments were not disobeyed as they were unknown. The value system was the exact opposite. 
you are supposed to steal anything you can to give to your own relatives. There are some westernized Africans who tried to rebel against the system. They fail. We hear a lot about the kleptocratic elites of Africa. The kleptocracy extends through the whole society. My town had a medical clinic donated by international agencies. The medicine was stolen by the medical workers and sold to the local store. If you were sick and didn't have money, drop dead. That was normal. So here in the States, when we discovered that my 98-year-old father's Muslim health aide from Nigeria had stolen his clothes and wasn't bathing him, I wasn't surprised. It was familiar. In Senegal, corruption ruled from top to bottom. Go to the post office and the clerk would name an outrageous price for a stamp. After paying the bribe, you still didn't know if it would be mailed or thrown out. That was normal. One of my most vivid memories was from the clinic. One day, as the weight grew hotter in the 110-degree heat, an old woman two feet from the medical aides who were chatting in the shade of a mango tree instead of working collapsed to the ground. They turned their heads so as not to see her and kept talking. This is all wrong. She lay there in the dirt. Callousness to the sick was normal. Americans think it is a universal human instinct to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It is not. It seems natural to us because we live in a Bible-based culture. We think the Protestant work ethic is universal. It's not. My town was full of young men doing nothing. They were waiting for a government job. Being black is exhausting. There was no private enterprise. Private business was not illegal, just impossible given the nightmares of third-world bureaucratic kleptocracy. It is also incompatible with the Senegalese insistence on taking care of relatives. All the little stores in Senegal were owned by people from the Mauritanian islands. If a Senegalese wanted to run a little store, he had to go to another country. Why? Your friends and relatives would ask you for free stuff, and you would have to say yes. That's the end of your business. You're not allowed to be a selfish individual and say no to relatives. The result? Everyone has nothing. How dare you? The more I worked there and visited government officials doing absolutely nothing, the more I realized that no one in Senegal had the idea that a job meant work. A job is something given to you by a relative. It provides the place where you steal everything to give back to your family. I couldn't wait to get home. So why would I want to bring Africa here? Non-Westerners do not magically become American by arriving on our shores with a visa. For the rest of my life, I enjoyed the greatest gift of the Peace Corps. I love and treasure America more than ever. I take seriously my responsibility to defend our culture and our country and pass on the American heritage to the next generation. African problems are made worse by our aid efforts. Senegal is full of smart, capable people. They will eventually solve their own country's problems. They will do it on their terms, not ours. 
The solution is not to bring Africans here. We are lectured by Democrats that we must privilege third world immigration by the hundred million with chain migration. They tell us we must end America as a white Western Judeo-Christian capitalist nation just to prove we are not racist. I don't need to prove a thing. Leftists want open borders because they resent white people, they resent Western achievements, and they hate America. They want to destroy America as we know it. As President Trump asked, why would we do that? We have the right to choose what kind of country to live in. I was happy to donate a year of my life as a young woman to help the poor Senegalese. I'm not willing to donate my country as well. Wow. Those are pretty two those are pretty two pretty deep dives into the well of reality. I've come to the conclusion that media collusion is wrapped up in denial and deceit and delusion. It can't be true. Come on and get a clue. Cause everybody knows white people do it too. I really like to play the knockout game Or leave your store in total disarray, disarray Don't hassle me, cause all your stuff is for free I didn't do nothing anyway Amazing Even though I'm 33 I'm just another team and Don't report random argy-bargy that you see on TV Cause you know through and through All you're gonna do is make the black kids angry It's not mob violence, it's just a fight Fellas blowing off a little steam Some midnight basketball will be just fine In the middle of our quiet, safe community Always getting picked on for no reason whatsoever That explains everything now until forever It really doesn't matter what happened to you Cause what they said I did, I didn't do Even though I'm 33, I'm just another team Talk about the violent fellas or the lovely lady Cause you know through and through All you're gonna do is make the black kids angry That could never happen here, Colin Senegal All that crazy junk they do down there That could never come to this country That tribalism No, Colin, that's a little far-fetched Well, okay, you're, maybe I thought that way too then I remembered all the places in this country where the new buzzword is water is a basic human right. That's what they say on the surface. Underneath the surface, the context is they don't want to turn the water off to black people who do not pay their bills. What a catastrophe. This is like, a, this is like something they've been dealing with in Detroit for a long time. Now we've got Chicago leading the way. Why don't we read some of an article from the UNS Review by the great Paul Kersey. 
Here's the headline. Because people of color disproportionately failed to pay their water bills in a 33% white Chicago, the new black mayor stops payment, stops shutoff for non-payment, and so far it's costing the city $20 million. Let me just quote a few lines here from Mr. Kersey. One municipality after another after another regresses to the African mean. And he's quoting a story from the Chicago Tribune on November 23rd, 2019. Chicago water bill payments are down $20 million this year. And Mayor Lori Lightfoot's administration said months after the mayor announced the city would stop shutting off households' water because of unpaid bills. You know, she was very, we're going to hear this in a minute, but she was very, very explicit during the campaign of reminding people that shutting off water to poor people will disproportionately, almost exclusively affect black people. Thus, she cannot do that anymore in good conscience. Yeah, just like the Senegalese person who can't have a store in their little neighborhood because all the relatives are going to come in and get free stuff. That's what this is. So now in Chicago, they're having a big disagreement about how much the water system, how much less people are actually paying in water bills. It's somewhere between $20 million a year and $165 million. This is in Chicago. Before she was even sworn in to, as mayor, Mayor Lightfoot said she would direct the city's water department not to shut off water for people who are not paying their bills. Water is a basic human right, Lightfoot said. If you are, quote, if you're turning off water, you are effectively evicting people. And we know that disproportionately affects low-income people of color who are going to be shut off from water services. We have to be much more thoughtful and much more empathetic to people who are struggling. You know, I spent a little bit of time in the water industry, not as a like a participant, but just somebody as a communications guru. So I got to know a lot about water and sewer. You know, the big we talked about this a month ago, but this is a black thing. It's a black thing just for that reason that every people not paying their bills are black. Now they don't want the water to shut off. As a result, all over the east, especially on the east coast, because they're a little bit older, the older pipes are starting to leak water, starting to leak water 30%, 40 50 60 as much as 70%. You can look it up for your town. It's called non-revenue water. So just look up, if you live in New- Newark, look up Newark, New Jersey, non-revenue water, and see how much water is leaking out of the, of the pipes because they keep the water rates so low, they cannot fix the system. You have to fix pipes at the rate of 2% a year because pipes last 50 years, 2% a year. So you have to basically replace your pipes every 50 years. That's a 2% replacement per year. If you're not charging people the right amount for water, you cannot do that. And a lot of places, even though they may charge you what the cost of the water is, that doesn't stop city officials from going in there, stopping the maintenance Pulling the wa- pulling the money out and using it for some other social program for the fellas like midnight basketball. Oh yeah, 
That is the story of infrastructure in chocolate cities. And now we got Chicago raising their hand saying, yeah, we'll volunteer for that too. We'll volunteer to have our water system disintegrate right in front of our eyes because we don't want to make, we don't want to shut the water off. So basically, if you're going to make water, the water bills voluntary in Chicago, what's going to happen to the water system? What's going to happen to the Senegalese store that, you know, the woman, you can't can't operate it because your relatives come in and get free stuff. What happened? She went out of business. So now we're giving out free water in Chicago. How is that going to turn out? The story finishes by saying ending water shutoffs was part of a broader move toward ending what Mayor Lightfoot called needlessly punitive fines and fees for things like parking and vehicle sticker tickets. The mayor also got rid of overdue fines for book in the Chicago library. Fellas get more free stuff. Meantime, apparently, white people are expected to pay their bills, and if they don't pay, and, and if the money doesn't roll in, and they and, they, and so you have to raise the raise your water rates. I mean, at what point are white people in Chicago just going to say, "Hey, I'm paying my bills, but like forty water bills, but like forty percent of the people in the city are getting free water? What's that all about?" You know, it's amazing how the environmentalists are absent from these kinds of discussions because any environmentalist who is true to what he says knows that the best way to conserve water is by putting a meter on it and making sure somebody's paying something if they use it. You got to make people pay for what they use or else we're over, you end up overusing it. That's like, that's like high school economics. If, you know, there's a, if, if, you know, if, if there's a, you know, a Rolls Royce out there that costs 500 grand or something like that, but I get it for free and I don't have to pay the bills, I'm just going to run that thing into the ground, let somebody else take it to the garage to get that $10,000, $25,000 repair job, and then let me run it into the ground again. That's what it's like with these water systems in these chocolate cities. Nobody cares. It's all about like what's happening right now. We'll let the people 10 years from now, when they're, they don't have a water system anymore, we'll let them worry about it. We'll let them blame it on the white people who let this happen. Oh, yeah. That's how they roll on water and sewer in this country. The fellas blame it on white people. That's what they do in Baltimore. That's what they're going to be doing in Chicago. (laughs) We'll see if Chicago ever reaches the Senegalese tipping point. All right, let's let's go from Chicago and Senegal. Let's go right back here to good old U.S. of A. Chicago is still in the United States. I'm not even sure if it is. But there was a story out of Kansas City today, boy, that just tipped over so many dominoes in my mind. We'll hear it in a minute. A bunch of some fellas were were breaking into a guy's car. He comes out, Hispanic guy. He comes out. Soon he's dead. Boy, there's so many things that just crowded into my mind. The first thing I thought of was that all over the country, fellas, tonight, including my little town of Wilmington, Delaware, fellas are walking the streets at night, sometimes in the day, just checking doors. 
They go up and down the street pulling the door. They do that to garages too. At a minimum, if they get in, they get some change. If there's anything else valuable in there, they get that. If they find some keys in there, then they really hit the jackpot. That is an everyday thing. It happened to me five days ago, the night before I went down to Washington, D.C. for a couple of days. Yeah, I walked into my car. Yeah, there was a lot of junk in my car. There was, okay, not that much, but enough. But there was not one single coin in the car. There had been maybe, you know, two or three dollars worth of quarters and a little compartment on my side door. But all, every scene, I've got like five glove boxes of some kind or another, storage containers. All of them were open. That's the price you pay for forgetting to lock your door if you live anywhere near a chocolate city. That's a black thing. Does anybody remember Hoover, Alabama? Does that name ring a bell? Mike, don't feel bad if you don't. I had to look this up. But I remember the, I remember the, I don't remember, didn't remember the names, but I remembered the cast of characters as if it happened yesterday when it happened a couple of years ago. Mike Gelati, 30-something-year-old guy on his way up. Iraqi war veteran. Hardworking husband, father. Gets up at 4.45, leaves the house to go to go to a gym, go to a workout, so then he can get to his office and begin to work goes out to his car. There are four fellas in his car. They kill him. A year or so later, those fellas are on trial. And and not one of them was convicted of murder. Another murder trial, another acquittal in the shooting death of Hoover War veteran Mike Gelati. A Jefferson County jury deliberated for less than six hours before finding 19-year-old Ahmad Johnson not guilty. ABC 3340's Lauren Walsh talked to Johnson's mother immediately after the verdict. Lauren, what did she have to say? Chris, obviously, she was relieved for her own son, but she also really expressed a lot of sympathy for Jelotti's widow, who's still now waiting for her husband's killer to be brought to justice. And Heather Gelati has yet to release any kind of statement through the prosecution. Now, today, the jury found Ahmad Johnson. They acquitted him on eight counts, including murder and breaking and entering into cars. But the jury did find him guilty on two counts of receiving stolen property of one for one of the cars and also a gun that he was found with. Now, it's important to note that Brett Gray, the defense attorney, actually told the jury Johnson was guilty of those two charges. He told them, though, that Johnson did not commit murder and was never in Lake Cyrus, which is where the slaying happened. Prosecutor Lane Tolbert says he believes one reason the jury returned a not guilty verdict for murder is that the panel did not find the state's star witness credible. That witness was one of the four teenagers charged with murder in the case and offered a deal for cooperation. Tolbert did talk with Heather Gelati after the verdict and he said she remains strong. There's still a hole in their life. And we weren't able to give them any answers. You know, Mike was not killed by a shadow. You know, he's killed by four guys. And it's pretty obvious who was involved, and we couldn't get any justice for him. She was disappointed, um, as was uh, Mike Sr., because, you know, he lost a son in this. But what's really amazing about that family is they were consoling me. (laughs) Um, There's no way of getting over this for them for a while. Um, We didn't help with this verdict. So now we go out to Kansas City, Missouri for the identical story.
just after seven o'clock this morning, a male confronted someone who was trying to steal his car and a shot was fired and the male was We're not sure if he left on foot, if he left in a car, how he left the scene. All we know is that the person that is So what's gonna happen to that fella or fellas if they catch him? They're gonna get some sharp lawyer to come in and convince a Bronx jury. Now, the, somehow the white guy killed himself out there. Never should have been out there in the first place. Why were those cops so mean? Why did those, why'd they pick on those four? How'd they pick those four out? So now the family down there is going, man, what are we going to do? I mean, they had a bunch of trials. Everybody went free. I mean, they had them. They know who did it. They're not going to have to go out and look for anybody else. They don't know what to do. I don't know what to tell them if they were sitting here right now. What would you tell them? I think we'd probably have a lot more to learn from them. Let's go over to England for a minute. When I first saw this, I thought it was Birmingham, Alabama, but I think it's Birmingham, England. England. They just they just put out a movie in England about some it's like a it was based on like a true story. It wasn't a documentary, it was a drama about some of the fellas, some of the ladies hooking up with the lovely ladies, killing their rivals, the whole damn thing. Let me just play. I can't even describe it. It was meant as an authentic depiction of the lives of young people caught up in gangland violence in London. A look behind the all-too-frequent headlines of today. But now Blue Story is making headlines of its own after a mass brawl at this Birmingham cinema complex involving gangs of youths, some armed with machetes, which left seven police officers injured. And the film itself now removed from the screens of two major cinema chains. Facing criticism of overreacting and even racism, Today View Cinemas in a statement defended the ban, saying it was not based on the film's content. During the first 24 hours of the film, over 25 significant incidents were reported and escalated to senior management in 16 separate cinemas. We cannot and will not take any risks with regard to the welfare and safety of our staff and our customers. Today, one of the actors in the film said the cinema ban missed the point. I think the question that should be asked is why, does young, why do young people feel the need to sort of, you know, carry out violence in in those type of establishments, etc., there is a deeper conversation to have rather than just blame somebody for it and be like, okay, it's, it's their fault. It sends a very um, misleading message to up-and-coming filmmakers or up-and-coming actors, you know, because this is about letting young people from those environments know that you can come from that and make something of your life. That's the ultimate message. With the film now pulled from two major chains and another, Odeon reportedly reviewing security measures put in place for the film, today the culture secretary backed the cinemas. Cinema chains should make the decision about the films that they want to show and if there are concerns, actually a film is leading to violence. It's absolutely right, it's the cinema chains that should make that decision. For some though, the ban smacks of dangerous hypocrisy. There are other violent films that don't get banned and there are other incidents where there's been violence and those films haven't been pulled. So why specifically a black film by a young black filmmaker being pulled in this way? Blue Story has been critically acclaimed, a story its writer says about love. In case you didn't hear that, they're talking about they had major episodes of black mob violence at 16 movie theaters. And you got these, these actors, these directors, these self-appointed black community organizers 
saying those people are bad people from taking that movie out of the theater. Man, that movie is like so true. You're like proof of how, you know, what the, the proof you're you, you, taking the movie out is like proof of what a bad person you are. You're the kind of person that forced these fellas into that life of crime and violence and murder just by removing that movie theater, that movie from the theaters. Anybody remember what Chris Rock had to say about some of the fellas at a first-run movie? Can't go to a movie the first week and come out. Why? Because niggas are shooting at the screen. What kind of ignorant shit is that? Hey, that's a good movie. That's so good, I got to bust a cap in here. Chris figured it out. That story could have been written and, and published in any city in America many times a year. Whenever some vaguely violent movie comes out with a bunch of fellas in it, the fellas are going to show up and create some holy hell. Because going to the movies, creating holy hell, well, that's a lot of fun. And that never made the black kids angry. Talk to you tomorrow.